0: One critic wrote of me, it's supposed to be a denigrated remark about my music, said that I was emotionally manipulative. <laughs> I took it as a good really. as a complimentary. Really. If you can if you can move people or change their emotions through the music one writes, then surely that must be a good a good thing to have.
1: He's one of the world's most played living composers. Carl Jenkins was born and raised in Wales. He regularly ranks highly in musical halls of fame, charts and concert hall performances across the globe. He's been described as a composer who recognises no boundaries, musical, commercial, geographical or cultural. His is a way of thinking and composing that is perfectly in tune with the spirit of the times. He's even been described as a gift to humanity. Sir Carl Jenkins, a very warm welcome to the Big Interview. Thank you. Well, I must say it's great to have a gift to humanity sitting in the studio <laughs> to Midori House. How do you feel when people sort of attribute those kinds of monikers to you?
0: I don't. Um, it's very gratifying and and humbling. Very often, but I don't take it with any great degree of seriousness. In the sense that is, uh, my heroes, musical heroes, as we to talk about music far greater than I would ever be or aim to be.
1: Let's go back to your childhood. You grew up in Wales. I did. What was your childhood like?
0: It was tragic in one way and, and very happy in the other. It, tragically, was my mother died when I was five from TB. But apart from that, uh, there's a strong family. My father essentially raised me with my widowed aunt. The family was... It was essentially Welsh grandparents, but I had one anomaly, as it were. Uh, one grand- grandfather was a Swedish sailor who sailed to Newport docks. <laughs> Went walking around the town, and my, my grandmother, was a, she was a cockle picker, and she used to go by train every Saturday from the local village, which is called Pencloud, via Swansea, to Newport in Gwent. And she met this sailor and uh, they got together, and he stayed. And he left behind him three spinster aunts who lived into the 90s. And then later on, my Welsh grandmother, who'd married this sailor, was drowned out in the Bury estuary with eight other cockle pickers by a kind of freak tide that came and enveloped them. So You're
1: right, it sounds like something (laughs) that Benjamin Britten would have written. (laughs) in that very mixed world that you're growing up in you have a family which is being assembled from all corners where does music begin to fit in
0: well very much my father who was a musician a school teacher by profession and he taught music and art which was a an unusual combination and music was always in the household he played the piano he taught me when i was at a quite early age i think it was four or five when i started And LP, extended play vinyl records, were appearing then. This was 1940. Ian Master, quite a huge collection of vinyl LP records. Long playing LP.
1: (laughs) So the music is on in the background and the music is of the great classical composers. Yeah. At what point does this suddenly start to become serious for you?
0: Serious in the sense of planning a career quite late, but I didn't find a true instrument until I started playing a recorder in the junior school I was I attended, and that was I was better on that than I was on the piano. When I went to I went to a local grammar school, I started learning the oboe, a woodwind instrument. So, so that's what I did, and I rose through the ranks of orchestras in the youth section: it was West, West Glamorgan, then Glamorgan, and National Youth Orchestra of Wales for my school years. But the other important thing in my in my school years was that I discovered jazz, and that was uh, a life-changing moment for me in many ways. One was expected as a student. Uh, this was when I got to university, really. I went to Cardiff University to read music. As I said, I had no master plan. It was just by process of elimination, really. I did music for o and I did it for A-level, and, and that's where I ended up.
1: What did your family think of you Choosing this path because it's—I'm the daughter of a music graduate, and she always said that it was brilliant from when you did it, but it didn't give her any clear course as to what to do with life. And it was considered by several as not a proper subject. It was something that you did as fun. It wasn't part of real life.
0: No, exactly. You tell—you know—if I told someone I was a musician, they say, "What do you do? What do you do for your day job?" But it was very much part of a real part of life for me. Obviously, as as I moved moved on. But that's true of like all creative subjects I guess, whether it's whether you're writing or whether it's art. It's not taken seriously by certain people.
1: What happens next?
0: Well, nineteen sixty three to sixty six was kind of a pivotal change in my life. Sixty three was when I I graduated from Cardiff with a Bachelor of Music degree. During the summer well, first of all, I applied to come up to the Royal Academy of Music here in, in London, uh, which I, I did an audition and got a place. So I came to the Royal Academy in September, and shortly after that, in October, was the, um, the Aberfan disaster in Wales, where 100 school children were flattened by a coal tip that slid over the school. On the site of the landslide, the task of rescue operated with speed. It looked impossible. It looked hopeless. But these men are miners. Their children were buried in that mud. Mud almost filled the classrooms. With shovels, if necessary, with bare hands, they pitted themselves against the uncounted tons of slimy filth, the waste product of coal mining. Perhaps their little sons and daughters might still be alive. The school lay in the direct path of the disintegrating man-made mud which was a major moment in a lot of people's, well, not just in Wales, but everywhere, huge tragedy. But I was in London, I got in touch with one of these musicians and then I played with his band, that was Graham Collier, who was a bass player and a composer. So my one year in postgraduate here at the Academy, I was doing quite a lot of moonlighting as a jazz musician as well as doing what I had to do there. So that was my first break, really.
1: It's a long way as a, a, a sort of a jazz rock musician in London in the 1960s, from the man who I'm looking at today, who is you know, one of the most world most popular composers. A jump must occur. When does the jump happen?
0: <laughs> the jump was was fortuitous, as everything has been, a series of lucky accidents, and I term myself musical tourist but that, there was no master plan. So, from being a jazz musician, I played at Ronnie Scott's club with various bands. Then we formed band called Nucleus. It was the beginning of what they called, and still do, I guess, jazz fusion, where jazz, instead of adopting the swing rhythm of swing music, started playing all the rock rhythms. Nucleus, the band, we were always winning competitions from university. We were sent to the European <laughs> jazz competition as part of the Montreux Jazz Festival. So we won that as well. And the prize was a trip to the Newport Eminent, well known Newport Jazz Festival in Rhode Island, New York. So we went and played there.
1: It must have been very exciting for a young lad from Wales. He suddenly finds himself on Rhode Island. Rubbing shoulders with the players who you've been playing on your in your records in your home? Yeah,
0: some of them, yes, yeah.
1: What was that like? who Who were you bumping into?
0: Well, people the, the elder generation was still alive there. Lou Armstrong was there, and Solonius Monk, pianist. It was great and they eventually moved on to soft machine it had quite a few incarnations at band as it went through its life the band gradually transformed into um i think intentionally did it into an improvising band and stopped having any kind of vocal element It was multifaceted. It was a jazz fusion improvisation band, improvisatory band, that also did things like pattern pieces. We used to go on pattern pieces with a few keyboards rippling up and down, and it became known as minimalism. Which we didn't coin the word, someone else did. I was involved in that for a number of years. We taught quite a lot in Europe, Italy, the United States, some of the time.
1: One thing that we'd love to talk to you about is the, the commercial nature of a lot of your composition. What's it like writing commercially when you have a visually stunning set of pictures filmed that you have to write to and you also will have a commercial client who will come back and say rewrite this rewrite that we don't like this we don't like that what's that like for someone who says he writes for himself
0: irritating but the the one who came back was usually the it was usually the creative team who put the art together from the advertising agency, and the client wouldn't have seen it little further down the road. No, but it was irritating, but I learnt a lot in that because a lot of movie directors are working, following the still photographers, people like Alan Parker and Scott Brothers and Hugh Hudson, who started doing movies, having commercial movies. And because I was quite, uh, my skill set was quite wide then, Covering classical and jazz or rock or whatever. So it was very interesting. One could do, we'd be doing a symphony orchestra one day, and then a, we did a thing with Jack Bruce the next day of Cream, you know, guitar, based drums, and a revamp of his. I feel free. So we did that and anything in between. And I learnt a huge amount about ethnic instruments, and London being what it is, there's someone here who can play, there's someone who can play anything here in London. It'll easily be found through. Musician Union channels or whatever. So I learned a lot about, you know, what is called ethnic music, meaning the indigenous music of various cultures. Somewhere along this path, I was asked to write a commercial for Delta Airlines. <laughs> fly over 220 planes from Europe to America and that calls for a little synchronized flying.
1: It's an incredibly strongly layered piece of music and there's so much going on in there, so could you try and unpick a few little bits of it for us?
0: Well, it was done essentially with two singers, two girls, ladies, women. One was the lead singer was Miriam Stockley, who's a South African, white South African, which is kind of relevant musically. And then there was another singer, Mary Carew. She was classically trained and did a lot of different styles. So those voices were layered up, over tracking themselves, multi tracking. Until we had a choir of voices, really. It was a surprise in a way, not how good it was, but if I may say that, but how what commercial success, how our peop- grand people were. And it had a kind of global appeal.
1: Well, I mean, what do you think the appeal is? I mean, they always say that you, you know, there's something about your sensitivity to music. If the hairs on the back of your arm go up when you hear something, it's, it must be especially good when it has that kind of physical reaction. And dare I say it, I'm just looking at my arm and there they are. Yeah, hairs but, are listening. What is it, do you think, about that piece of music, which is not just like making that emotional connection with the immediate audience, making everybody want to go and get on a Delta Airlines aircraft, but a good few decades on, it's still making you think, yes, that is still very beautiful and very modern.
0: Yeah, well, I find it impossible to quantify, really, especially as a composer. But it's not something you can replicate easily, throw a switch and dish it out, you know.
1: Do you ever get that feeling, though, when you've written something and you think, oh, hello, I think we've got something here?
0: Yeah, but I never thought that about that. And there's another piece of mine, Benedictus from the Amen, which is hugely popular. If I could analyze it and quantify it, that should then be something I could do tomorrow or every day. But it isn't quite like that, you know. You have a theme, it it develops I never think anything I write is wonderful. I don't write something and say that, oh, great. But once it passes my own test, that's okay for me, you know. I think that's quite good.
1: What's the Carl Jenkins test?
0: Well that's intuitive, it's intuitive. You know, it's just what I
1: and where does the melody come from? Can it just, does it just, where do you, do you sort of, you explain a little bit about your kind of like your well, writing I don't, things. You write every day, don't you? you yeah, you most days. Day.
0: I don't walk through the woods and wait for the kind of muse to hit and all that. I don't, it never works like that. Because I have to work steadily, not, not every day, but sometimes it's every day, yes, if it's a big project on. I usually do it by doodling on the piano until I hit on a something I like and then develop it and kind of uh, expand it or change it. But all that's based on intuition. But having said that, that's intuition based on whatever training I had when I was younger, studying harmony, counterpoint, fugue, all the tenets of classical music and composition. I mean, in the West, we all use the same, whatever the genre is, we all use the same 12 notes. Well, globally, really, apart, I say in the West, because there are some quarter tones used in some cultures, notes between notes, I mean it's amazing how inexhaustive it is what appears really. It's never dried up yet. So it's really hard to explain, other than my method. I used to write pen and paper. Until Adi Amos actually, that's when it suddenly changed, between that and the arm man. And that's when it changed because I became forcibly in a way to become computer literate only by having to wanting to use this Sibelius Music program, which meant I could play on the keyboard, and the notes would come up on a screen on the stave, and I could allocate them accordingly and just use it like a large sheet of paper. And you could do all the things you can do, which you couldn't do with pen and paper, which is cut and paste and transpose. And it was kind of revelatory, really. It changed the way I composed.
1: How do you think that the music that you write has changed the way that people approach music insofar as when the classical radio stations were emerging 20 years ago and there was a really formal nature to the way that you listened to music. You went and sat yeah. quietly, obediently, motionlessly, absorbing something that you think you should be listening to. And then suddenly our radio stations start to say, well, we can mix a little bit of Carl Jenkins with some Rachmaninoff and some Mozart. And it's... All the same. It's all just music. That must fill you with joy.
0: Yes, but it isn't... There's still a bit of, you know, anti-feeling to what I do by a lot of people. What do you mean? Snobbish attitude. Because it's accessible, it can't be good. (laughs) It could be good if it's accessible if it was written centuries ago, but not nowadays. It's changed a lot, I agree with you. I agree with you. But you still get that feeling, you know. I've never had anything played at the proms, for example.
1: How does that make you feel that you know the doors are still being closed to you?
0: One critic wrote of me, it's supposed to be a denigrated remark about my music, said that I was emotionally manipulative, <laughs> and I took it. As, uh, yeah, I took it as a good compl- as a compliment. Really, if you can, if you can move people or change their emotions through the music one writes, then surely that must be a good good thing to have.
1: And we're in a time, we're in times of the world at the moment where arguably music is one of those little handles that you can grab onto to try and make sense of it all. I mean, a lot of stuff of what you write is about peace and bringing people together and and it has a very hopeful nature to it. Why why do you do that?
0: Why do I do it?
1: To try and get us out of the mess.
0: <laughs> no, I was drawn to it because after after this is success of Adiemus, the next piece I was asked to write, commission was the Armed Man, which was uh, it was commissioned by the Royal Armouries who run the Tower of London, and uh, Music Charitable Trust, and they wanted a piece of music. This was would be about 1998-99, a piece of music that looked forward to a new millennium, without war and peace and the rest of it. So. That was my kind of big work at the time. After which, I kind of did more of that. I did. There were two avenues I took. One was recreating some of the stable kind of um, works that people had written, like uh, Requiem, Stabat Mater, uh, Gloria. So I did that. But I always introduced into those that canon of of text, usually in Latin, similar texts from other cultures that told the same story. But I used quite a lot of Japanese haiku poems, sung in Japanese, that told of rebirth, regeneration, very often equating it with like cherry blossom or melting snow, precipitation, and the cycle of things happening. So uh, this was a pattern I engaged in. So it's always been a kind of globality, globality, if I'm going to use that word, or globally, that's appealed to me in crossing barriers both of text and language and instrumentation.
1: Finally, Carl, the conductor, Sir Simon Rattle, said that music is a birthright, but you have to get to it young. What are your thoughts, or how hopeful are you, that there are Carl Jenkins waiting in the winnings, ready in the United Kingdom or anywhere in the world to take on that mantle?
0: Everyone wants to be a musician (laughs) of one kind or another. There are far more self-taught musicians now than when I I was growing up. There are very few, really. Whatever style they learned with someone, a friend or a teacher. Um, But now since, it's not just since the internet, it's it's since programming became, programming synthesizers, You could create things in your bedroom and stack it up like a multi-track. When I was doing music for commercials, it asked two or three companies to do a demo, like that Adi Amos story I told you about and you got paid 2,000 quid for a demo or something. Now they have, like, hundreds of people in their bedrooms doing it, sending one in for nothing. An incredible musician in that genre, I think, is like Jacob Collier, who I think is quite amazing. And that's regardless of style or category of music it is. It's just fantastic music and very well done, incredibly well done and arranged and produced.
2: Feel when you put your arms over me. Mm. There must be something I could say to make you say baby. Oh hi, hello. Look the way that you get in the goo when you walk with me. Blame me.
1: So Carl Jenkins, thank you for joining me on the big interview on Monaco 24. That's it for today's edition. Many thanks to our producer, Emma Searle, our editor, Jack Dewars, and our researcher, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. From me, Emma Nelson, thanks very much for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.